Hey, welcome to episode four of the Urban Agorist podcast. Today I'm joined by economist, podcaster, public speaker, writer, and everything else, really, Anthony Davies. Anthony is one half of the Great Words and Numbers podcast, um, which, you know, if all you're listening to is agorist and anarcho-capitalist uh, whinging all day on your podcast, then definitely give Words and Numbers a look because it kind of lends an air of optimism and cheerfulness. So uh, with that said, Anthony, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Kind of tell us about all the stuff that you've done because you've got a resume a mile long. <laughs> well, th thanks for having me. I was interested when I saw your podcast that you were looking for someone to talk about entrepreneurship. I've been in academia for much of my career, also spent some of it in the public sector. Sorry, not the, the private sector, <laughs> not the public sector. Um, but I also spent, um, I've started several businesses. And so I, I have kind of both an academic's view and a practitioner's view of entrepreneurship. Have you taught entrepreneurship or is it? No, no, never have oddly. You know, I'm an economist, so I, I teach economics. And the, the, thing, the thing I've noticed about academics and entrepreneurship is often they'll have people, not always, but often they'll have people teach entrepreneurship courses who have never been entrepreneurs. Yeah. And so they, they, they think they understand it from an intellectual background. Uh, but, but then conversely, you'll get people who sometimes will teach it who have no academic background. They're only practitioners. And on, on the one side, on the academic side, they don't understand many of the things that are, that are important to entrepreneurship that don't appear in textbooks. On the practitioner side, many practitioners mistake luck for skill. And we'll say, well, you know, the key to being a successful entrepreneur is to, you know, do the following and whatever it is, it's whatever this guy did that happened to work out. So I, I think there's room, at least in, in higher education, for a balance between the academics and, and the mm -hmm. and the practitioners. And you kind of you kind of lend that, actually, I guess. Um, talk about some of the businesses that you've started or uh, I noticed I, I, and I just did a cursory um, review of sort of what you've done on Wikipedia. Uh, but it looks like you've done your share of starting businesses, but then also a lot of entrepreneurship from within businesses where you were patenting things and stuff, but not necessarily as a founder. Is that, is that right? Yeah. The, uh, the, the one I have a, a um, I'm a co-author on a patent on supercomputing and that I wasn't technically, I wasn't the founder of that company, but I was one of the founding employees. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, employee number three, uh, there. But what we did in, in that company, it was um, an interesting business model of taking uh, people's computers when they're sitting there idle connected to the internet and binding all that power together and reselling it as super computation. So doing for computers the same sorts of things that banks do for money, you know, bundling together small people's savings accounts and putting them together and making big house loans or something like that. So that was one. I founded a couple of, of internet startups in addition. And I've had my my range of successes from, you know, bankruptcies to uh, going public to being sold uh, to, you know, those sorts of things. So, yeah, I've, in, in that sense, I've, I've seen both the ups and the downs of being an entrepreneur. <laughs> what are, so given your experience and knowledge, what are some of the qualities that you would say make for a good entrepreneur? Well, that's really interesting because, you know, a good entrepreneur walks a very fine line 
a good entrepreneur will take risks, but they're prudent risks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you can get lots of people I've, and I've seen them who have some harebrained scheme to make money real quick and they'll go out and they'll mortgage their house and do the, and the thing, of course, flops, right? It's a horrible thing. So entrepreneurs, yes, they're, they're risk takers, but they're prudent risk takers. I spent my fair share on online courses teaching me how to do affiliate marketing and drop shipping and right. uh, private labeling and all that stuff. Um, I haven't ever mortgaged a house, but I'm definitely out a few hundred bucks here and there. Yeah. So it's <laughs> that's relatable. Um, and it's one of, one of the interesting things that's developing in this country. And I'm hoping that we don't go overboard and start trying to regulate it. And that's the gig economy. Yeah. The gig economy is really interesting because it gives budding entrepreneurs the ability to get their toe in the water, try out something while you have the security of a regular job. Mm -hmm. If the thing doesn't work out, fine, you've got your regular job. If it does work out, you can grow this into a regular business and you know, before you know it, you're employing other people. And I think the big error that we're making, I say we, it's mostly California at the moment, is is trying to classify these gig workers as employees. Yeah, rather than 1099 contractors. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that and that that unleashes kind of a, a whole a whole slew of things that make it nearly impossible for the business to actually do business. I mean, if a software company like Uber were considering its drivers employees, then well, now it's all of a sudden a taxi company and not a software company. Is that yeah, that's that's true from Uber's perspective. So Uber starts to look a lot different. But conversely, the workers start to look a lot different. If you are being classified, let me say it differently, if the state is requiring my company to classify workers as employees, then I'm going to go the next step. And I'm going to say, okay, well, if I've got to pay all the benefits required to an employee, I'm going to get the benefits on my end by scheduling you for certain times, requiring you that you dress appropriately or whatever it is. And all of a sudden, all that flexibility that the gig worker had disappears. What advice would you give to someone who is pretty risk tolerant, but maybe foolhardy for kind of growing that prudence muscle? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would say get hooked up with someone who is like an angel investor, mm -hmm. um, not not necessarily for the money. What you want, it's actually much more value, valuable for someone like that, is the advice, the experience. This is someone who's going to look with a skeptical eye at whatever harebrained scheme it is that you have. And, and so it, it's someone that to keep you grounded. I think one of the things that entrepreneurs, one of the errors that entrepreneurs make is they, they're they skeptical of outside money, of angel investors, these sorts mm -hmm. of things, because what the entrepreneur sees is this is my company. And if an investor comes on board, I have to give up control of it. Well, okay, but understand when an investor comes on board, what the investor is buying is in large part the entrepreneur's um, excitement and ideas about this mm -hmm. thing, it doesn't want to take the entrepreneur away. But what it does do is it brings not just money to the table, but it brings this experience, this skeptical eye that's going to help the entrepreneur prevent making lots of mistakes he would otherwise make. A lot of times you'll hear uh, entrepreneurial gurus, their, their main piece of advice is to follow your passion. Uh, and if your passion's not profitable, then it's doomed, I think. Would you say that or? Yeah, I, I, would say, I would say, yes, follow your passion. 
but but be careful here. If you're not passionate about it, there's no sense in following it. Mm-hmm. But just because you're passionate doesn't mean it's a great idea. Right. You, I've seen entrepreneurs who are all invested in these certain ideas and they think they're wonderful products. And you ask anybody else and they say, no, you know, I've got no use for that thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so uh, to be a successful entrepreneur, yeah, you have to be excited about your product. But more than that, you have to be thinking about consumers Think about what they want rather than what you want, because those are the people that ultimately are going to fund your business. And are you doing any any private sector stuff now, or is it purely academia, other than, uh, other than writing and podcasting, obviously? Yeah, I actually with my um, with my colleague James Harrigan, we started uh, dipping our toe for the first time into nonprofit uh, oh. areas. So we've been going around the country for the past five years, um, doing um, giving lectures to high school students on economics and government policy, these sorts of things, and working in the nonprofit world is remarkably different than working in in the private for profit sector world. It's in the private sector, in the for-profit world, your focus is always on the consumer. What does the consumer want? How can I do my job better for the consumer? These sorts of things. In the nonprofit world, I, I don't want to say your focus isn't on the consumer. Maybe I should say it differently. Who the consumer is changes. It's no longer the person to whom you're delivering the product. It's the people who are donating the money to maintain the, the business. Those are the consumers. So there you have to kind of walk a, a weird kind of a, of a tightrope of, on the one hand, delivering the product that you think should be delivered, that you're there to deliver, in our case, giving good quality lectures to high school students. And on the other hand, um, delivering to the donors what the donors want yet kind of handholding them mm-hmm. when they go astray and they say, oh, we want you to start doing lectures on, you know, pick something else. Um, mechanical engineering. You have to hold the donor's hand and say, no, 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 no. That might be a good idea for somebody else, but that's not consistent with what we're doing. It would take away from our core business. So it, it's a different sort of, of consumer relation problem, I guess. Mm-hmm. For sure. What uh, What's it been like? Um, I mean, obviously you and James are free market libertarian-ish types. Um, what's it been like traveling from school to school, talking to kids who are uh, likely being taught contrary things to that by yeah. the teachers? We, we take a very... We, we take a very balanced approach in doing this. So yeah, you know, we're, our, our perspective is one of free markets, but it's not anti-government. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when we're in front of a bunch of students, you know, we'll talk about, uh, here's a, here's a problem society's facing, be it poverty or, or environment or whatever it is. And there are tools that we can bring to bear on this problem. Some of the tools are market-based. Some of the tools are government-based. There are pluses and minuses to each of these tools. We talk about that. And then what we leave them with is the idea that our goal should be to try and match the problem with the right tool, understanding the, the abilities and constraints of those tools. Mm-hmm. And that, that approach seems to go very well for everybody. We at least keep getting invited back. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty great. Yeah, it seems like Fee has always been pretty. I'm, I'm assuming Fee is the nonprofit you're referring. We've to, been right? doing this through Fee. Yeah. yeah, we started nonprofit separately, but we've oh, been working okay. with Fee uh, for the past year or so. We all know one of the easiest ways to start gaining self-sufficiency is to grow our own food. Whether you're an urban agorist living in the city or an urban agorist at heart living on your homestead out in the country, you need seeds. 
Unique heirloom seeds are becoming endangered. 90% fewer varieties of seeds are planted today than just two generations ago, and just a handful of large corporations control the majority of our seeds. Seeds are disappearing all the time, and they're being replaced by cookie-cutter varieties that are bred for profit, not for flavor, robustness, yield, and certainly not the unique needs of your garden. Whether or not you're already gardening or saving seeds, I invite you to join me at the Online Global Seed Summit from November 17th through the 20th to revolutionize your understanding of seeds and the role they play in your and our collective future. To learn more about the Global Seed Summit, head to urbanagorist.com summit. When you sign up for the Global Seed Summit, you will connect with a global community of people who are committed to a healthier future. Now more than ever, people are beginning to realize the importance of taking control of their own food secure future. Take control yourself at the Global Seed Summit. Head to urbanagorist.com summit to sign up today, and I'll see you there. So switching gears to your academic work a little bit, you have described yourself to me as a dirty Austrian e economist. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and on Wikipedia, it said that you were in the neoclassical tradition, um, but that you dabble in the quote heterodox Austrian school. Right. I'd like to know a little bit more about your academic work, where you come from, um, and uh, how you see that kind of merging of those two schools. Yeah, I was, I was raised as a standard Chicago style economist, you know, I understand macroeconomics and, mm -hmm. and my specialty is actually econometrics, which is kind of anathema to, to uh, Austrians. Yeah. And um, this was maybe 20 years ago, a friend of mine asked me to come to an event given by, I forget what the organization was, and would I give some talks on, on trade? I said, sure, I'll come and I'll do this. And so I do my talks on trade, same sorts of things I normally do. And then I'm sitting in the audience while some other faculty are giving their lectures. And I hear a sequence of an, an Austrian economist and a philosopher, both of them making the same arguments that I make from my Chicago style training of here's the data, you perform this analysis and lo and behold, trade's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And the philosopher and the economist are both making those same arguments, but they aren't making them using any of the tools that I use. They're using logic and first principles <laughs> and referring to the nature of humans. And it just blew me out of the water. And I realized that if you can come to the same conclusion using these diametrically opposed tools, there must be something fundamentally right about that conclusion. Mm -hmm. And so that started my love affair with, with the Austrians. And, and what I've found since then, I've kind of been, um, I've kind of made my niche taking Austrian arguments that are, are quite good in throwing data at them so that the non-Austrians can see how good these arguments are. Yeah. Because look, you, know, you, you apply regular yeah, analysis to it and you get the same result as the Austrians get. That's pretty great. Yeah, I, I think there's a few other um, Austrians who have kind of uh, caught that bug a little bit. I think Bob Murphy has been doing a lot more with numbers and things like that now. Um, yeah, so that's good. yeah, there are more of us like that now. Yeah, I, 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 I like seeing that. And I know that um, some of the more classic Austrians were very opposed to it. They, they, they thought that it would kind of taint the water somehow. But, uh, you know, I like consensus being reached and speaking the language of the people who oppose you uh, is always beneficial, I think. Um, well, that is about all I've got as far as questions go. Do you have anything to 
plug? Do you have any points that you wish I would have brought well, up? Yeah, well, we wanted to talk about about entrepreneurs and in from an economist perspective, entrepreneurs are are these wonderful things. They're the engine that drives the the trial and error that's the economy. So, you know, we look around all these wonderful things we have. We have, you know, grocery stores filled with food and we have computers in our pockets and, you know, telecommunication, all this stuff. All of these things come about because of a dance that goes on. And the dance is entrepreneurs propose ideas and consumers judge them. And the, the ideas that consumers judge worthy get money thrown at them. The ones that they don't, don't get money and they wither. And, and so through this kind of like trial and error dance, over time, we got all these wonderful things. If it weren't for entrepreneurs, we wouldn't have any of this. It's not, not entrepreneurs in the sense of producing the product, but entrepreneurs in the sense of coming up with the ideas that, that didn't exist before. So I think that's one interesting point about entrepreneurs. Another interesting point about entrepreneurs, we seem to have, particularly in the United States, kind of a love-hate relationship with them. On the one hand, we all tend to love, you know, the, the scrappy entrepreneur who gets out there and risks everything and starts a business and employs some people and creates a product. And we all say, yay, go entrepreneur until he becomes successful enough. And then we say, look at that evil billionaire. Oh, <laughs> well, come on, man. You know, you look at someone like Bezos, yeah, he's worth $85 billion or whatever it is. He's simply an entrepreneur that had such a good idea, we threw a ton of money at him. And that's his $85 billion. And, you know, is it in a sense, we have this biased view because the we only tend to see the successful entrepreneurs. You mm -hmm. see um, Warren Buffett, you see Bill Gates, you see Jeff Bezos, you see Michael Dell. You don't see the guys who risked it all and lost. And why don't you see them? Because they no longer are entrepreneurs. They're employees. Yeah. They've gone to work for somebody else. <laughs> They're consultants so, now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so we, we have this tendency to, to begrudge uh, you know, Michael Dell, Jeff Bezos, et cetera, their billions, when in, in fact what you're looking at is the very few entrepreneurs who actually made it great. And, and if those billions weren't there for them, all the other millions of entrepreneurs would have less of an incentive to join this dance of trial and error, mm -hmm. coming up with new ideas and taking risks to offer them to consumers. What, what about the entrepreneur who becomes very wealthy because of either taking advantage of the regulatory system or subsidies or government contracts, that sort of thing. Um, do you see that as problematic, amoral, perfectly well, fine? I see it as a problem, but let's be clear where the, pro where the problem lies. These, these people are entrepreneurs just like any entrepreneur. What an entrepreneur does is he goes out there and tries to find what he can provide to others that others value. Now, the problem when you get entrepreneurs that are out there being, let's call them political entrepreneurs, they're working the regulatory system. Mm -hmm. Well, what they've determined is that there's a somebody has put a bunch of money on the table for them to behave in certain ways, to provide right. certain things. The problem isn't the entrepreneur. The problem is the guy who put the money on the table in the first place. Mm -hmm. And those are the politicians. So, you know, we talk about, you know, it's evil to try and buy politicians. Well, hang on, man. <laughs> the problem is that the politicians have something that they're offering for sale. Right. That's the primary problem. Yeah. And, and so when, when politicians insert themselves into the marketplace, 
They send a signal to entrepreneurs everywhere. You can stop thinking about what consumers want. Start thinking about what I, the politician, want. And they all turn their attention to the politician and you get bad outcomes. Yeah. And when you've got the the regulatory agencies primarily staffed by people who um, aspire to be working at the businesses that they're regulating, then uh, that creates a bit of a conflict of interest, I think. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. It creates a horrible conflict of interest funded by the only person who isn't at the table. That's the taxpayer. Right. Well, great. So I guess in for the last couple of minutes, I guess, what what possessed you to go from the private sector to academia? I'd love to know that sort of train of thought and train of action. Yeah, it was actually the other way around. Um, okay. I went from academia to, to, the, to the private sector. I was... Um, I enjoyed studying economics so much that I kept studying until I ran out of things to study. And when I ran out of things to study, the only way to keep working at studying economics was to become a professor. So I did that, okay. right? So it was just kind of like becoming a super student. And um, and it, at some point I realized, this was pretty early in my academic career, I realized I was getting bored. That, that cool, neat ideas aren't rewarded in academia what's rewarded in academia is towing the line, not rocking the boat, this sort of thing, the antithesis of what it is to be an entrepreneur. So um, I get this bug. It turns out to be once every about seven years now, I'll say I've had enough of this and I go (laughs) off and found a company. (laughs) I found the company. And of course you get all the risk that goes with that and say, oh my God. And, And the thing turns out either it goes bankrupt or I sell it or whatever it is. And I turn to my wife and I say, for God's sake, don't let me do that again. <laughs> and seven years later, I'm back out. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really fun. So, and do you do you do you get into the controversial topics? Being being that you're in a university, um, have you had any issues with uh, with the kind of current trends in academia? No, no. A lot of the nonsense I've been spared on two counts. One, I'm at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. It's a Catholic institution. Um, Catholic institutions tend to be a little less tolerant of that Mm -hmm. academic nonsense. Um, Also, out here in Western Pennsylvania, it's a little more libertarian leaning. So you also tend not to get a lot of that nonsense that's plaguing other parts of higher education. So that's on the one count. On the other count, um, I've learned... I've learned that in higher education, faculty will spend a tremendous amount of time discussing and debating and arguing about things that, from which nothing ever comes. Right. So I just say, well, I'm just not going to deal with it. So when something comes up, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to ban speech on the following topics. I just ignore it because you mm. know what? In six months, it'll all be gone, right? <laughs> because that's the way faculty do. What are you, are you familiar with? Praxis, the organization that? Um, oh yeah, yeah. I was one with... of the early investors in Praxis. Oh great, yeah. Have you have you done much with them? Do you do you do you uh, stay in touch? Yeah, I worked with them early on. I helped um, Isaac uh, build the their economics module, which they okay. used for teach economics. Now they've kind of shifted their the business has shifted its focus since then. I don't know if they're still using my materials, uh, but yeah, I'm I'm aware. I get their newsletter periodically. Do you think that Do you think that that's um, kind of the future of post secondary education and training? Um, do you oh. think there's a place for universities in the future, or? Uh, yeah, I, I think the, the whole model of higher education is going to get turned on its head. Yeah. And whether, I don't know what the right answer is. In fact, I don't know if there is a single right answer. There are probably lots of different right answers. A praxis model is 
is perhaps one of them. Of it, it's basically a, it's become a model of training. So you come in and you go through this thing, and they hook you up with a with an employer, and they train you on things you need to know, and and um, and you come out of the thing with a job. That's a decent model. I think there are other models that are coming to the fore now with the whole COVID thing. Uh, I just taught this morning two classes right here from this chair online. The experience for me was better than go, being in a classroom. This experience for the students was better than being in a classroom. Okay. And all of a sudden you realize it's possible to deliver a four-year bachelor's degree without any infrastructure whatsoever. Right. I, yeah, now, I did my I did my bachelor's online through- uh, Oh, Saint, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, through St. Louis University. Okay. So, you know, no small potatoes- uh, Phoenix or anything like that. It, you know, it's a real university and right. I, did it, I did it all online. So from, yeah. Minis from Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those sorts of things are possible. I, I think they have to, you need a younger version of faculty in here mm -hmm. because of my tech background. I'm very comfortable with the whole sure. technology thing, but generally faculty my age are not, we've got to wait for them to retire and the next generation to come in before we get widespread online education. Sure. Um, and of course, there is something to be said for uh, social socialization, that sort of thing. Although, as as any homeschooling parent will tell you, um, you don't need school to do that. <laughs> yeah, not only do you not need school to do that, sometimes the socialization socialization you get is not positive. <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think that the uh, am I am I correct in saying that you're fairly optimistic for the future, even despite what's uh what's been going on this year oh yeah very much so very much so if there's one thing that history teaches us if we look back is that humans are incredibly resilient we mm -hmm. have we as a species have overcome ungodly problems to get to where we are and things like even things on the scale of a world war the, and lesser scale the pandemic that we're dealing with now these things actually are drops in the bucket compared to what humans have done as we've come out of out of the the trees and into creating societies and cities and all of these things yeah uh, so yeah i'm incredibly um optimistic about the future of humanity for sure you've taken the white pill as opposed to the red pill or the black <laughs> right pill. that's, that's a, right. um and it does i think that the future is pretty bright as well i think we're uh at the beginning of a paradigm shift um and i think that there's going to be plenty of potential for prosperity and maybe even some peace. Uh, thanks so much for joining today, Anthony. It's been My a pleasure. pleasure. Why don't you, if you have anything to plug, um, I do. I have two things to plug. Yeah. Uh, our weekly podcast, Words and Numbers, which you can find at wordsandnumbers.org. And uh, James and I wrote a book that came out just, just days before the lockdown, Cooperation and Coercion, which you can find on Amazon. And that is James Harrigan. Rather That's than James me. Harrigan. Yes. Yeah. I don't write books yet. Uh, <laughs> uh, great. Oh, and the Words and Numbers podcast also has an uh, associated Facebook group that I am part of. It is one of the few free Facebook groups that somehow manages to stay kind of uh, peaceful and kind of good discussions. We're uh, nice to each other. <laughs> yeah, we're nice to each other. Exactly. Thanks so much, Anthony, uh, and I will see you on Facebook. Thanks again to Anthony Davies for joining me to talk about his career and to dish about entrepreneurship. It was definitely a great conversation. If you're an entrepreneur, especially if you're operating in an agorist-friendly market, let's get you on the show. Drop me a line at james at urbanagorist.com or send me a message on Twitter at jameslj. For today's show notes, as always, you can find them at urbanagorist.com slash four. 
There will be links to Anthony's podcast along with the book that he wrote with James Harrigan. Be sure to subscribe to this show on iTunes or Spotify or YouTube or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Hit the like button, leave a comment or review, and most importantly, please share the show with your friends. Thanks for joining me today, and until next time, live free. This is the way I-